here. Hello. Hello. Welcome all special Monday Memorial Day generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. Um, I always have very, very mixed thoughts about things like Memorial Day. For me, it's the same as Veterans Day or Fourth of July or any of those holidays where we pretend that we actually care about the people in this country. And it just makes me sad. You mean like the fact that we just started a war in Somalia? Is that, is that, where, we, is that where we started? With? Well, it's that and it's how horribly we treat our veterans. We once, do treat them pretty when, Once people do serve and put their, and again, I don't agree with the majority of the missions that they're sent on, but I have a lot of respect for people that um, serve the country. I think there needs to be mandatory service. And it should have so you could have civil service as, as the option. Well, yeah, I think there should be mandatory civil service. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And um, yeah, or military if you want, you know. But I, yeah, I you don't have to serve in the military. No. And frankly, not everybody is capable of serving in the military. No. Let's be fair about that. But there is something to be said for serving your country. I don't I, think there's anything wrong with that. I have no problem with it. You know, they have that in Israel, and I believe they have that. Do they have that in other places? I'm not sure, but in Israel, yes. After high school, everybody is mandatory. Everybody is mandatory. But it is military, but it's not everybody is combat military. Sure. But I I actually believe in the idea of mandatory service. So I, I have no problem with well, that. Well, I, I did my part for the country today. I did the Murph wad. I did it in 54 minutes and 30 seconds. I think that's my that is my I've never heard of time. such a thing. So Michael Murphy was a Navy SEAL who was killed in Afghanistan in 2005 and it became a tradition every Memorial Day going forward that the Murph Wad would be the workout of all like CrossFit gyms and all of that. And, you know, obviously you don't have to be part of CrossFit to do that, but it is a, it's, it's a great tradition. It's, um, it's an insanely tough workout. It's one mile run, 100 pull-ups. Uh, that's if you do kipping. I do re- like actual pull-ups. Uh, you two- did not do 100 pull-ups. I did 70, uh, 80 pull-ups. That's what I did. Oh, for, I don't even know if I buy that. I'll have uh, to see a video of that. 200 push-ups and 300 air squats and then another mile run to cash out. It's like a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> but I appreciate the sentiment. I um, Yeah. The best way to memorialize people that put their lives on the line for this country is to stop going to wars for profit and using people to do so. Yeah, that would that be, would be the idea. best way to memorialize the people that have died in this country. Stop doing it. Uh, I don't know if Wade's show is here. So, Wade, you're going to have to fill us in on what you're referring to. Uh, Shaw. Wade Shaw. Did I say something else? I thought you said show. No, Wade. Uh, maybe I did. OK, so Wade Shaw. Uh, fill us in on uh, Rebecca Jones and the You don't need to Miami tell me about Herald. the corrupt Miami Herald. Yeah, we already, know about, we already know about that one. They're right? a rag. Yeah. And you know what's sad? I used to work for them a long time ago. And they were actually decent. They were owned by Gannett. It was a decent, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, but not anymore. No. Now you're owned and, by corporate powers. Yeah, so. it's not. It's Well, journalism in general real. is like falling off the charts. But um, you don't have to tell me. You could tell me anything. I'd believe it about them. They're a total hack paper. So is the Sun Sentinel. I won't talk to either of them again. Well, again, I don't know about, well, it depends on the circumstance, but I would definitely say that with the, the Herald, um, they were a bigger problem because they interviewed Jen under false pretenses and then turned it into a sandbag article, which is like- They uh, both suck. And they when people suck. wonder why, you know, journalism has gotten such a bad rap for, for such a long time, it's, um, it's really not hard to yeah, say. Yeah, I won't talk to either of them again. And what's interesting is, is that if we run again and let's say hypothetically- we won, which would, you know, 
then there would be a sitting congressperson that refuses to talk to their local newspapers because they're rags. Yeah. And that's unfortunate for them. So that's actually something that motivates me from time to time. So we've obviously had a lot of things going on over the past several days. Uh, unfortunately, there's um, not a <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of things we'll be able to talk about with our military panel this evening. Uh, I mean, look, everyone is going to have an opinion, but the truth of the matter is um, we manufacture weapons in the United States. That's all we really That's do. That's a big part of our economy. Uh, That's our number one export is weapons. Making guns alone, and this is without the military industrial complex you know, defense budgets that we have on Capitol Hill. Uh, gun manufacturing in the United States is about a $3 billion a year business. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of jobs. That is a... <laughs> Again, uh, when you want to know why it's so difficult to get actual reform regarding guns, it really, you know, again, it's easy to just say that it's the GOP. And obviously they're the ones who are, you know, bought and paid for by the NRA. We'll have a lot of fun talking about Ted Cruz tonight. I have to, you have to bring me up to speed. I know something happened with that douche. Uh, Yeah, uh, doors. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, people. Okay, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm sure it'll always come up. We are never going to do anything to restrict guns in this country. It's not gonna happen. And quite honestly, even if we did, it's completely unrealistic. There's more guns than people. Like that that ship sailed. That ship has sailed. If you're not gonna even attempt to do the buyback program at least. That and, and that that'll only address like a couple percent. No, because the results on that no, are. No, but always the point small. that you brought up that I thought was interesting regarding this circumstance, which I thought was was probably very appropriate, is this idea that all right, so let's say that we do at least get a AR fifteen ban on civilian purchases, especially those that are uh that are not ex-military. Sure. And even then, that would be- uh, Let's let's get them out of it. Let's say I agreed with that, which I don't, but let's say hypothetically that I agree with a ban on assault weapons. Let's say we do that. They'll create another weapon that will be able to be used by civilians. Um, there's, a, I mean, again- People don't I'm know about not, guns. They I just am not, well, know. of course. And, and they're it, ignorant. Watch Bo, Bo the Fifth Column. He talks about it regularly. His ideas yes. the other day for reform are actually quite smart. They're things that can actually be done. Banning assault weapons won't work, and it won't solve the problem that you're trying to solve. So all that's going to do is create a black market, and you're going to have this- if somebody wants to get their hands on that, they're out there in this country. There's nothing like ship sailed. And by the way, the majority of these mass killings, my understanding is that they were legally obtained firearms. They were. Right. So it's like even I just we're we're circling a drain, people. We're circling a drain. We're not addressing what the real problems are. Yeah, we are a for-profit military country. Uh, that is probably the biggest reason of all. You know, yeah. our economy is so embedded in the war machine. And, you know, it's not, Guy, it's not a question. And this is where I, I agree. What is the downside of the AR ban? Again, it's not a question of whether banning the AR-15 is a good idea or not. We'll discuss that with the panel. The, the, the reality is we do have a massive market for this, and the people who bought these firearms, bought them legally, we're also going to have to address the fact that we are a for-profit military country. And if we're a violent AR, country, people. And, uh, if the AR-15, and if the AR-15 were to be banned, <clears throat> the odds that another weapon of similar consequence would be on the market and be, being the hot item, so to speak is also infinitely possible. Now, would I, it, 
Do I have a problem with the idea of an AR-15 ban from civilian usage? Not at all. You I mean, realize that the next thing will just take its place. So this is the thing. Maybe if, it guy, if you haven't watched Bo's stuff on gun control, and he even did I, at least one video that explains why banning is not going to solve the problem um, based on so, like reason and facts and statistics, it won't solve the problem. The reason the AR-15 is the most commonly one used is it's the most common one owned. But if you get rid of that, something will fill its spot. And what could fill its spot could actually be, and Bo explains this because I don't understand, it's gun speak and he knows his stuff, that the AR-15 is actually not a powerful weapon. It's considered like medium power or whatever. It, again, Bo explains this. But the point is the next popular one is more powerful than the AR-15. And it, you're, you're playing whack-a-mole. We need, you know what I'm saying? You're playing whack-a-mole with this. And um, again, I don't generally support bans or mandates. Like that's not my thing. But it just won't work. It won't work. There's too many guns out there. Like it, it, we're done. It's done. And after Sandy Hook was my big epiphany, I, I ran on that treadmill with Moms Demand Action before it was Moms Demand Action. I did that. And I've learned a lot since then. But even just that was the big epiphany to me. And um, actually, I saw Jordan talking with Ty the other day, and Ty said the exact same thing about that's when he knew that there is just no coming back from that. Yeah. We allowed the massacre of a class of first graders. So no subsequent incident is going to be make it worse. We're like de degrees of absolute horrific shit. And because like, you have one side and one side of the argument is always let's just arm more and more people. Let's yeah, just not give more and more people. Again, no. the reason they encourage people to get armed is because once again, we make weapons in the United States and we make a lot of them and they make people a lot of money. So if you can convince more and more people, um, you know, and, and again, I think guys bringing up an, an, an interesting point because fully automatic weapons are banned. Now, we'll talk about this with the panel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that bump stocks were banned after what happened in Vegas is, is, do you, am I, I don't know because that? it doesn't matter. You can keep banning those things. They'll keep getting them or making them quite honestly, they can make them. Apparently now they can be 3d printed as can magazines from, from my understanding. So you, it's, again, you guys are playing whack-a-mole. That's not, the, that's not the solution to the problem. So what And I'm not a gun person. I don't have guns. I don't want guns. I, wouldn't, I don't understand why people are so into them. It's just not my thing. I have used firearm. Like, I know how to. Um, it's not something that I find enjoyable, shooting holes and things. It's just not my thing. Um, but, and I also don't feel safer with that. Most gun. And I'm also a person of reason. See, statistically, I'd have a greater chance of being hurt by my own gun than it would ever have to defending me. And people that have guns in their house, it's like, what's the percentage more likely that somebody's going to get dead? And so I'm just, it's not, I've never felt the need for that. I've well, just never felt the need for that. The I don't feel cause, unsafe. Well, the number one cause of gun death is suicide. So I just want to um, know, like, and this was something that, that Russell Brand said, and I also loved his take on this, was like the fact that we live in a world where there's so much turmoil and hate and able to get people to punch down in other, whether it's like misogynists or racists or whatever it is, like people are so, so unhappy here. And, and it isn't mental illness. Yes, there is some of that, but it's, that exists in other countries too. You know, other countries have mental illness, but we don't have any sort of concern for the collective in this country at all.
We don't care about the collective. And when you start talking like that, people start calling you a socialist or a communist. But the reality is in other countries, like places like Japan, they care about their collective. They respect the collective as a whole. They respect their society. They respect who they are and what they are. I still think the bigger problem is the fact that we do not have a society that has a, you know, like a legitimate social safety net where people- And healthcare. That is part of it. Well, it's we just don't not have a living wage. Collective. We don't have universal healthcare. There's a lot of things we do not have, and that leads to a lot of these problems. But I would definitely, this is why we're doing this panel because, as you know, we are actually, I would like to think, uh, a podcast that really does appreciate and respect veterans and, and what they do and what they've gone through. And there's, um, you know, everybody has a, a quick trigger finger in the United States in terms of what we do, what we don't do in terms of foreign policy. Being able to hear from uh, people who have actually served in combat, I think, is very important because, again, you get a perspective from people who put their lives on the line. I think that that is very important. So without further ado, we are going to start. Um, we will hopefully have our third member arrive as well. OK, Guy, just you, no, go ahead, bring him in. I just want to I'm going to say that, yeah, the majority of gun problem is handguns, though, not mass killings. Those are still a very small percentage of the gun problem in this country, which is why it's sort of like a Band-Aid that I think of suburban and and moms like me just think will fix the problem. And it, it just won't. Well, let's hear from people yeah. who have actually used guns that have a yes. pretty good opinion on this. So without further ado, he is a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Air Force. We wanted to get him on for a while. Bill, a story. Welcome to Generational Change. Is it a story or a story? Did I say it right? It is a story. You're right. All right. For once I pronounced it right. He did it right. Normally he's kind of wrong. And our second guest who has arrived, she is a candidate, not only a retired uh, Army veteran, but also somebody who happens to be running. We always manage to get a candidate on the show, so why not? Uh, she is running for the U.S. Congress on a no corporate money platform in New York's 22nd congressional district. Where is that? Upstate New York. Okay, okay. I love Sarah, I like the state. Sarah Cleahood, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, good afternoon. Evening. Hi, <laughs> it's nice to meet you. So where is that? Where is 22? So 22 is upstate, um, but we're talking, if you were to look at a map of New York, it's literally in the center of the state. So if you look at Lake Erie, we're just, or Lake Ontario, we're just south of that, but we are centrally located within the state, um, definitely upstate. So we do have- Are you Ithaca? Are you Ithaca? We are uh, east of Ithaca. I've been, okay. so I've been in the race since November. My second district because of redistricting included Ithaca, but now the final maps no longer include Ithaca. Okay. Okay. Uh, I could have gotten you a vote. I could have gotten you. <laughs> my son goes to school there. I could have gotten you a vote. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk, as you've all seen, uh, regarding you know how do you deal with this? Um, you know, you know, you want to call it a gun problem, a gun issue. There's a lot of different ways that people can go with this. Uh, I am not a firearms expert. I would never pretend to be. I do believe in the Second Amendment, but I also believe that we have a very toxic gun culture in this country. I don't think it's overrun as much as people think, but there is a segment of the population that is absolutely uber obsessed with it. Sarah, you're in upstate New York. Uh, it is a lot different than New York City in terms of how people feel about the Second Amendment. So, Wherever you guys would like to start, obviously a lot has been going on, but for those who have served in the military, um, you know, any type of weapon that you use can be used to kill. And while the overwhelming, over, over, overwhelming majority of people who have and own firearms in the United States are law-abiding citizens, there is still a problem that exists. And it's a very serious one that I think we need to address. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we real we we need some real gun control. You know, I, I come from a, a family of of gun owners, and I've I've shot my fair my fair share of of guns. Anything from a pellet rifle to the forty four Magnum that Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood made famous. You know, back in the early seventies, mm. and you know what what we need is to take guns seriously. And what I mean by that is is that is that guns are designed primarily to kill. I mean, it's it's lethal force. And when you take a look at the assault rifles that, you know, we have something like 20 million assault rifles in circulation in the United States right now. And this is absurd because assault rifle, rifles, they're designed for the military. You know, they have no purpose in hunting. And they have no purpose in really in, in self-defense. And so, um, I hope that we as a country can get past the, you know, the usual, you know, do nothing Congress and the usual slogans about, you know, God, guns and guts making America great, which I see as a bumper sticker around here quite a bit. And we finally come to the recognition that guns do need to be controlled. Yeah. Sarah, what do you think? Sure. Uh, So a little bit of context, uh, because where I am, NY22, it's a little bit different, like you said, for downstate. Uh, I'm a suburban mom. And every time the news comes on with a mass shooting or gun violence incident, my heart sinks because we're going back to this. We're going back to the same place that we've been however many months previous. Um, And it's it's horrific. Um, That's probably one of my worst nightmares is every time the school calls, regardless of what the incident is, they always start out with, this is not an emergency. So I yeah. can't imagine what would happen the moment that I have to pick up the phone and those words aren't said because it is in fact an emergency. Um, having been in the military and qualified on the M16, I've, I've shot it. I know the power that's behind it and I, I don't see a place for that in society. Um, and I serve, I serve on my community's police commission. So I'm a police commission member and this is a hot topic for them as well because there are some some folks that believe that they do need these, um, you know, these highly aggressive weapons. And um, that's not necessarily the case. I think that it's the louder voices, the fear mongering that is really setting precedence here and taking away the voice of the folks that, um, you know, that are more concerned about their family, about their community, ensuring that the community is safe. But we need to do it from a social, a social and societal aspect. Uh, right when I came on, I was hearing the end of it, that there's no social network. If we can help do that, I think that that's part of a, a solution to the end of the crisis that we're seeing right now. But we definitely need to find some restrictions and a balance here because um, parents can't be operating on this fear that the moment that their children go get dropped off at school or they're going on a school bus that they're not going to uh, see them again. And that's unfortunately the reality that I'm living in and that a lot of other parents, not just in my area, but around the country are living in today. Yeah. I mean, let me clarify. Like, I don't think those are something that people should have. Like, I just don't. I'm just my thought is there's things that we can actually do. And one of those things is apparently the one common denominator of all these mass shooters is 60 percent of them have incidents in their past with like domestic violence, family violence, um, a situation. And we have loopholes in this country for gun owners. So it's like, you can't get it if you have domestic violence flag against you, if you're married, but if you're not married, which is like the, the domestic partner loophole, there's a ton of things that you can just get around and do that. So there are things we can do to control who gets guns. 
Um, I just question whether we could effectively ban something that is just out there as, as it is. Yeah. Thoughts? You seem to be in the minority now, Jen. I'm not in a minority. I think, I what, think, I think so. what ends up happening, unfortunately, right now is when people are scared, and rightfully so, especially parents or kids who have seen this happen more than once in a very short period of time, uh, you start wondering, you know, how do you actually deal with it? And naturally, you want to be able to take it away from people. And I do agree that nobody should be getting weapons of war. Um, that apparently is uh, something that most people do agree with. <clears throat> what we were talking about before is the fact that our country is a multi, multi-billion dollar weapons uh, manufacturing industry in the country. It's a lot of jobs, a lot of uh, political influence to come with it. And when you have such completely bought off individuals and horrific spokespeople like Ted Cruz, who stand up there and try to come up with the most asinine solutions to this problem, you know, we're not having a good faith conversation. And then you have President Biden coming out saying that Mitch McConnell is a rational Republican. It's like, no, there is nothing rational about what's going on right now. We have uh, a societal crisis in many ways that we see is, uh, you know, basically falling apart at the seams. Uh, Sarah, you alluded to the fact, you know, when we do not have, you know, universal health care, a living wage, we just started another war in Somalia. It's, uh, you know, again, it, it weighs on people and it just makes you think, you know, how are we ever going to get to the negotiating table? Now, with that said, there actually is something that is on the table, because as you guys know, when these things happen, there is a tendency to be running in a thousand different directions. As far as I can tell, there is a pretty solid bill that is in the Senate right now, H.R. 8, which had passed the House, which is universal background checks, which also requires a three day uh, wait period for anyone who wants to purchase these firearms. And it closes the online and gun show loopholes. If you ask me, if those three things were done, regardless of a ban, I think that would help a lot. And that would at least be a place where we can start. Now, my question is this. I don't give a damn what the GOP is doing. I want to know why Senator Schumer is not bringing this bill to the floor for a vote, regardless of whether or not it can pass. The fact that it's not even being brought to the floor so that way GOP senators have to explain to what will be tens of millions of American citizens tuning in to see why we don't actually need to do anything about this. Everything is fine. Let's just leave it as is. What do you guys think? No, I, I agree with that completely. And something like 80, 90 percent of Americans are for uh, universal background checks. And, and the gun, you know, the, the gun show loophole is is absurd. You know, I've been to those gun shows uh, and it, it's it's kind of a strange thing to go to a gun show. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people have have turned guns into uh, almost like a, a fetish, if you will. Oh, it uh, is. You know, there, there shouldn't there, there shouldn't be an, an easier way you know, to buy a gun at, at a gun show that that really makes no sense whatsoever. You know, universal background checks are a great idea. We should press ahead with that. At, at least we can get that one thing done and get some momentum toward even more steps. Because I, you know, I want to make a, a point about guns, and, and that is, is that you know more people uh, commit suicide with guns than actually shoot other people. Uh, you know, my brother's a firefighter, 
and as an EMT, you know, he would go to places, uh, you know, people buy guns, you know, some people thinking that it's going to make their home safer. But it turns out that what happens is, is somebody ends up using gun accidentally, shooting a family member, or in a case of domestic violence or anger or fit of anger or a fit of despair, they end up shooting someone or someone else. Uh, and so limiting access to guns and not seeing them as some kind of a, of a panacea is, is very important. Yeah. Something I was actually thinking about is, is, you know, in my mind, like this is something I would be okay with and is anybody who gets a license to carry. So meaning that you are not just having it in your home for personal defense, but to me, you should have to carry insurance on that. I yeah. think that you should have to carry insurance like you have to have for a car and you would rate that insurance like a 16 year old boy is having way higher insurance than like the 45 year old woman. Right. So I would do the same thing with guns unless it's just for in your home and protection. And I think that is a much easier sell to people when they want to argue about Second Amendment. So yeah, you can have that in your home. But if once you take that out amongst other people, haven't make people pay for it. Like, like make it be, give incentive that make it really expensive and have insurance. Sarah, your thoughts? Sure. So when we talk about um, house bills that are up, I, so as a mom, things are going through my head, a lot of this discussion, right? And um, when we talk about the, the three-day pause in terms of when you can um, actually receive the gun after application to get it. Um, it goes back to, and this might be, this may be way too out there, but um, it goes back to the psychological maturity of the brain. When we look at the folks that are doing these school shootings, and I go back to the school shootings because they're near and dear to me, um, they're, they're younger folks that don't necessarily have a mature brain. Their frontal cortex is not there. They may not be able to understand the implications of it. So it's an irrational thought potentially, but if we give them that pause of three days to wait, I think that we would there there's potential that it's it's not going to come to fruition. Um, the immediate, you know, I have I have young children. They want things, they want them now. You ask them to sleep on it overnight, the emotions go down and it's not necessarily a must-have anymore. So I think that if we're able to do this along a lot of with a lot of the things that you've said, Jen, in terms of just in, um, raising the price. Uh, the young gentleman that committed the last attack. Why did why weren't bells going off when he was looking for 300 plus bullets um, to be purchased? I mean, why why wasn't that raised? Why don't we yeah. why don't we limit the amount of ammunition that can be bought at one time? You yeah. know, we, we need to be putting some barriers into place in addition yeah. to ensuring that we have the social recall and recourse to be able to deal with this in the back end or at the front to, to delay the problem. But um, I think that we need to look at this comprehensively. Yeah. 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 I was, I was just going to answer Guy about how that how that helps. Go ahead and say what you're going to say. No, go ahead. Um, so the way it would work would be there would be no immunity for negligence. You would be statutorily obligated. You would be statutorily obligated if something happens with your gun because it's out there and about. You're on the hook for that. You're liable for that. It should be statutory. And then it would be able to be, um, people would be able to be held liable. Um, so you would want it, you would have to have a certain amount of insurance. But I also think we could raise the age to 21. Um, and of course, there would be a military exception, but well, I think that would help. Well, here's a radical idea. Um, you know, Sarah is absolutely right that, you know, they've done brain studies to show that that uh, we don't really mature until we're in our early 20s as far as the brain. What about raising the age uh, of uh, entering the military to 21? Uh, you know, a lot of young people go into the military. Seven, you can enter the military 
at the age of 17 with parental permission. Uh, but a lot of people right out of high school, like my great nephew, who's thinking about going in the Marines now after just graduating from high school, you know, I'm not obviously not against military service since I served in the Air Force <laughs> for 20 years. Um, but, you know, we, we often grab them when they're young and dumb, to be frank. Uh, and we might want to consider the idea that, that why, why is it that, that we recruit so many young people into the military? Wouldn't a little bit more maturity go a long way toward fielding, uh, whether it's a better, a better enlisted person or a better officer for that matter? Of course, officers go through college typically or an academy, so they are 22, 23 when they go on active duty. But we really, we really pull in people young uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And one of the reasons why the age to enter the military is 18 and you can get uh, a writ of approval by your parents to go in at 17. And let's face it, you know, even years ago, some of them were getting it at 16 is because we don't have universal education in the United States. If we did, if we had tuition free public That's college and especially or even if you don't want to do tuition free public college, the fact that we do not have tuition free trade, trade schools the fact that we do not have that in the United States is why so many young people, especially in rural and south portions of the United States, That's they why. go to the military because that is the jobs program. And they can't get into college necessarily. Maybe nobody would have supported them to go to college, you know, and so they have to figure out what to do. Isaiah, um, Isaiah James, when he's yes. on our show, has said and where he grew up, the military was the jobs program. Yeah. Um, that's what was available. And so. being a and being a congressional candidate in the state of New York running on universal education is really not that difficult because New York once had universal education. So it's it's not like this hasn't existed. Right. But Reaganomics, uh, you know, Clinton era economics in the 90s, there's a lot of things that changed this country for the worse in terms of basically having a full fledged kill or be killed capitalist system where either you can hack it or you can't. And if you can't afford it, well, Go join the military. That's a really great idea. So this is an interesting question. And, and Douglas is asking, it's a, it's a long comment, but where is mental health in our schools? And I actually have some, I have some information on that, at least from our local perspective um, in Dayton Broward, that they spend more on their student resource officers, basically in school police than they do on counselors for kids. So there, if, if the, if the, I think the proper amount, it's like one per hundred or whatever, there's a number that's the ideal number for kids to have counselors and all of our schools across the board are so woefully under that number. And yet they have so much money for in-school officers. Um, so I just, I think that's very telling. So they're not putting money into mental health for kids. Yeah. And I can even say this as somebody who went to high school in the nineties that it, it goes without saying that, you know, I had my own issues that I dealt with. There were a couple of you know guys in particular that really gave me a hard time. Ultimately it did lead uh, to, you know, a handful of fist fights and that's okay. And I understand that things are different and people aren't necessarily doing uh, that as much as they used to. But then again, not everybody has somebody to talk to. And I will say that, um, uh, Mr. Smith, who was our school psychologist, I spoke to him probably once a week. And I will say that he was one of the most important people that I ever knew when I was in school. He really made a difference. Kids don't have that now. Kids at all. don't have They don't at all. They cut back on it all the time. And, you know, when you're talking about, and again, upstate New York is a great place for that. And, uh, and uh, where are you located, Bill? Um, I'm on uh, Massachusetts, Cape Cod. Okay. I was going to say, I so know that I he's got a Boston accent. Yeah, the accent was <laughs> sure. Congratulations to your Celtics, by the way. So Thank one you. thing I 
one thing I do want to say, though, is that New York and Massachusetts are two states where this isn't as big of a problem when it comes to public education. But in a lot of other parts of the United States, mm-hmm. I mean, here in Florida, I mean, if you are not going to private school in Florida, I mean, you're talking 35, 40 kids in a classroom. And that's even worse when you talk about the type of mental health treatment that these kids can get. A a lot of people, uh, especially on the conservative side of politics, they are talking about the need for mental health uh, uh, necessities and things like that. Okay, well, if that's true and that is how you really feel, then you have to be open about universal education because everything is connected between education and healthcare. And if you're not going to go down that road, then all you're saying is just a bunch of hot air because it isn't really getting to the heart of the problem. This idea that people can just arbitrarily afford to speak to a psychologist or, you know, get the necessary treatment. I mean, there are a lot of people only talk about the school shootings that we know about, whether it is at Sandy Hook, whether it is down. We are very close to Parkland. We're only 15 minutes outside of Parkland where we are in South Florida. And the, what what never ever gets talked about is how many near misses there are, yeah. how many circumstances there are where the kids are thinking about, well, what the hell am I going to do? I'm so fed up with this. I don't know what to do. How many of these potential school shootings haven't actually happened and could have because our society just is so it, it's like it's like falling apart as far as I can tell. I mean, it just I know I'm not in school right now, but but you're 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 a parent of a teenager in school. You're a parent of a yeah. teen. I don't know. Maybe a young person is in school. Uh, Bill, you may be as well. Uh, it is really tough to be a, a, a kid in school these days. And the one unifying aspect that I would love to get your thoughts on. I think technology is our greatest asset and it's our greatest detriment at the same time. I think it has played a significant role. Social media. And the idea of kids during their cognitive developmental years are getting cell phones and constantly living on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I think that's bad. Yeah. I I know. They're addicts. Yeah. I'm more conservative. They're they're addicts. (laughs) Addict behavior. And it shows that you get like that dopamine rush every time you get a like or whatever it is. And, and everyone should see this kind of experiment. The but socialist, the social dilemma. The social dilemma. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. What do you think about that? Like the amount of like influence that we see now. So I'll step in with this. My kids are 10 and seven. So they're still in elementary school. And we um, we try our hardest. They don't have cell phones or an iPhones. We're waiting until hopefully eighth grade. There's a pledge going around. Wait till eight. And that's the idea. But um, it's it's shocking to me. My my when she was in kindergarten, she's in first grade this year. uh, They get the opportunity to use iPads during free time. And granted, it, it has restrictions on there. But the fact that she knows how to navigate very succinctly across the different platforms with on, within the iPad is uh, it's shocking to me. Mm-hmm. And the older, the oldest, when she was in third grade, they would open their Chromebooks for school and they would learn on their Chromebooks while the teacher was in front of them teaching them how to use it, not knowing that they were in, not Instagramming, but they were instant messaging each other within the student app and not even paying attention to the teacher. Um, and I, I, I completely agree. I think we are opening it way too early. It's Pandora's box. Um, 
I was, I was walking behind some teenagers at the park and they, they weren't talking with each other. They were texting to each other and then they would look up and you can tell when they got the message to each other. And I think that because of that, we are significantly degrading the way that we socially interact with folks and we're losing that foundational human connection. And from there, as you know, that's how bullying can start because folks, there isn't repercussion on the back end. You can just walk away from your device and continue your day when you may have just given somebody else on receiving and the worst day of their life. Um, and when we tie it into the school system and we're promoting that type of learning responsibility and not having the mental capacity or the mental health to help break it up or, or back it up in those situations, I really think that we are, we're setting our children up for a generation of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I probably like many of us, you know, I, I didn't really love high school. Uh, not necessarily my, my best time. I, I wasn't the uh, captain of the football team, for example. Uh, and so um, the great thing when I was going to high school in the late 1970s is when I left school, I left it behind. Uh, now, when kids leave school, yeah. they don't leave it behind because they, they've, they've got the smartphone, they, they've got Snapchat and all the rest. And you can see other people and you can it, it's it's very difficult to opt out of all that. And so, I mean, for me. It's it's the technology as as good and as powerful it can be for learning purposes and you know and, and I taught college for for fifteen years um, you know technology is great but you know I, I saw a lot of effort in school systems being put on you know kind of like on network classrooms as the answer to improving education smart boards in the classroom computers in the classroom. And again, that is great for Bill Gates and, and, and Apple and corporations. But what really works in the classroom is a skilled teacher, skilled teachers, motivated teachers, someone who loves to teach and who can really connect with students and, and all of the other things that we've talked about, for example, you know, mental health and all the rest. But we just have this tendency as a society to think, oh, technology, that's all we need have a network classroom, get the right gizmos in their hands, and we're going to have universal geniuses. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And plus, I have this thought that these kids can't think outside of a paper bag anyway. It's ridiculous. Like, I was a, I was also a 70s person, but I was little. And I remember that. Like, you, something went wrong. You had to suck it up, deal with it, and get yourself home in one piece. Like, you, there wasn't mom on the other end of the cell phone. Like, these kids cannot... They don't reason at the same level. So at the same time, they're advanced in some ways. They're really like, I think, like hindered in other ways and certainly in social interaction. And I think there's so many and it seems to be men. It seems to be boys that are really predominantly having this problem in terms of the violence. And whatever that is, is something we need to address. And I hate to sound overwoke, like it's some toxic masculinity thing. But I think that there is something to be said about boys and gun culture and how that's perceived as manly and what that looks like. And there's this image that somehow that will help you if you are bullied or you do feel left out. And I think that we need to somehow work past that. Like there's a very toxic mindset about guns in general in this country. The violence is not going to decrease. It will only increase unless we are willing to change certain um, aspects of how the foundation of our country is constructed. And that is a very daunting task, but it's not like it's impossible. One of the things that 
I mean, look, my grandfather was the only person when I was 18 who thought it would be a good idea for me to go into the service. I contemplated going into the army when I was 18. And he was the one person who said he served in World War II, said he'll make a man out of you and all that. Uh, how do you guys see it? Because I do think that, and I and I we've talked about this at length about the idea that we we need people to serve our country, not necessarily militarily, yeah. But the idea of service to your country Civil is service. actually something of great value. And while there are negative things to you know obviously the military industrial complex that we have in, a, in our country, serving our country has a lot of value, and there are a lot of good traditional habits that one can learn in terms of you know, how to function as an adult in society and those types of things that you come from serving in, in the military. So we'd love to hear your thoughts about what your experiences were like. And do you see the value in having like a volunteer industry uh, that, you know, I, I think a lot of Americans would be open to if it was there? Right. Um, well, I, I go back to, you know, my, my father's days. Uh, you know, my, my father was born in 1917. In 1935, uh, you know, he went into what the Civilian Conservation Corps during the yeah. Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, so he didn't, you know, he didn't go into the military. He went into the CCCs. He made uh, $30 a month, I think $24 of which went back to his family. Uh, and for two years, he went from Massachusetts to Oregon to fight forest fires. Uh, and that's something, unfortunately, we're going to need more of uh, in, in yeah. our world today. So. Yeah. So military service is is obviously not the only way that you can serve your country. Uh, and, and I would like to see a, a broader notion of what national service is all about. Something like the old CCCs that FDR founded back in the 1930s. Yeah, I, I am a fan all around. Um, I think one of the greatest lessons that the military showed me uh, was how to work through diversity and adversity to get the job done. And it doesn't have to be the military complex that we offer, but we do need, we need multiple avenues for a, a public service component. And through that, you can get single payer. If we don't have it yet, good Lord, we need to get single payer universal healthcare. But if we don't have it, um, additionally, that service component, it, it um, inherently forces you to have a stake in the game. You want your community that you're living in and that you're serving to be better. And I think a lot of that is lost by the wayside with with um, the younger generations that are more or less just being assumed that they'll go to college or they don't even have a leg up. So I believe that there's a real opportunity here that we can get that social investment back into the communities ultimately. And if we can do it around the country, I think that we're only positioning ourselves for, um, you know, a more... Uh, I don't know if powerful is the right word, but um, a stronger livelihood and a brighter future for everybody. Uh, but it's really, it really teaches you that not everybody lives the same as you, has the same values as you, but you have a job that you need to do and you're going to need to figure out a way um, to get past those, those differences to get the job done. I think, and that brings me back to the idea that I was saying before about the need to feel like there's an importance in the collective. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you, when people are, it just becomes second nature in a society where at 18, you have to give this year, whatever, or when you graduate from college, a certain amount of time to serving, that becomes, I think, more, I think that creates more of a sense of the importance of the collective. I think that you start to create that. It has to start somewhere because we, that's something that's a big problem here. 
And I, and I, it is in how we treat our citizens, how we treat new people that come here, just how we treat each other in this country is really very poor. How about the way we treat our veterans? Well, yeah, that's, that's what, that's where I always go on play on days like Memorial Day. I'm like the best way to memorialize people is to stop sending new people to war for profit and treat the people that come back with a lot more dignity than we do. It's also one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we're such big advocates for universal health care. I mean, not only does it make total fiscal sense, but it makes the most humanitarian sense. There is no reason not to have it. We do not need the for-profit middlemen in between us and our doctors, and we certainly don't need it completely destroying the VA. But the reality is, if we had a universal health care system, you know, there are a lot of these for-profit or even non-profit organizations that wouldn't need to exist. We would have everything taken care of. And I think under those circumstances, the again, it's like this whole, it's like the whole economic structure of the country, not that we have to do away with capitalism. I happen to be a supporter of a hybrid system, a splice of uh, capitalism and socialism, which is what a lot of the more successful countries around the world, Japan, Germany, you know, um, Scandinavia. Basically everywhere but here. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, You know, that all comes to mind. uh, But I really do think that that'd be a big, big part. Can Can I point out an irony here? Yeah. And that is that is if you want a little bit of democratic socialism, join the military. Yes. And and what I mean by that is you, you'll basically get about a $15 minimum wage as as a as a private. Uh, you'll get money for college uh, and you'll get health care from the military. So one of the things I point out to people is that the military is is sort of a weird blend of of, of socialism. I mean, as as an enlisted person or as an officer, you know, the type of housing that you get is based on your rank, uh, but it's given to you by the government when you live on base. So, you know, there should be other ways of getting health care, money for college and at least a $15 federal minimum wage. There should be other ways than having to join the military for four years. Right. Well, we just need to have some other priorities besides creating mass weapons. That's like what we do now. That's that's like our biggest export is is military. And um, which then it shouldn't surprise people that our police forces are overarmed. And I wanted to get to some a comment that somebody was saying about it really exposed that the police mentality that they have to come home safe at the end of the day. And I just wanted to sort of bring this to something Bill said, because you really had me at that your brother is a firefighter. And now apparently your dad, too, because that's something to me that is firefighters to me is as close as you get to real life superheroes. Those are the people. And what I kept thinking of the other day when I was looking at the parents, the clips of the parents in Uvalde screaming at the cops, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you doing anything? And the first thing that came to my mind is firefighters would have gone in. Firefighters would have gone in and they didn't even, they don't even have weapons. And that's the, that's the thing. Like we so idolize policing, like it's somehow what we need to keep us safe. And yet, we keep proving to ourselves that that's not true. So I'd be curious what your thoughts are. I mean, I'm not saying I think we need to get rid of all policing and, you know, like that, but clearly they're not serving in the capacity that we need them to be serving in as much as serving against what we want. Like, doesn't it seem that to you guys? 
So I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, coming from the, the police commissioner side, we absolutely need to increase our resources for our police officers. Um, their job is to protect in a sense. And we're not we're, we're failing our communities when we allow them to go to situations when it's truly a mental health situation or it's a family dynamic and we need a social worker there. Uh, we need these professionals because that is their job. Their job is that human interaction piece. And every time that we're sending out police officers and expecting them to do something that is not their job is a failure to our community. And I think that we absolutely need to start looking at bringing in more mental health capacity um, into the responses or finding ways to even get there before it becomes a police response and find a way to start filtering out the nonviolence and finding the ways when their family or domestic issues to get the right service uh, service professionals there to them. Um, and I think that we'll, again, we'll see a greater community output at the end of the day. Um, and hopefully that will, that, that increasing, shifting the increasing in funding to the support mechanisms um, will help us, I guess, maybe instill some, some um, trust into our communities. Again, uh, we've yeah. been working on an implicit bias training program where we bring in, a trainer for our police officers. And now we're bringing it at the town board level. And it, th the whole goal of this is to hopefully repair the damaged relationship that we have because we're asking folks to step out of their professional wheelhouse and deal with things because it's easier. Um, because that's the way it's always been done. Uh, because that's where we like to put our money. And that's not the right answer. It's a failure. It's been a failure for decades. And now it's, it's coming to a head and we really need to be doing something else. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I will say, as, as, as you already mentioned, our, our police forces in the United States today are, are, are too militarized. You know, when, when, you have, when, you have police, when you have police forces driving around with, with MRAP vehicles that were developed in, you know, for warfare in Iraq, well, it, it's, just the, it's just the whole, it's the wrong mentality. It's a mentality where the police, it's, it's where the police think it's us against them. Um, another pet peeve of mine, if you will, are these police flags that you see now, uh, the blue lives matter flag, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I guess as, as an American veteran, and I'll just say, I have police in my family. My, my niece is a cop and her husband is a, is a, is a cop. So, but the idea that, that somehow we need special flags, whether for police or firefighters, it, it makes no sense to me, to, to me as, as a, as a retired military officer, there's only one American flag. Uh, and we all serve under that flag. Um, and so, you know, I would I would like to see the police, you know, live up to the idea to to protect and to serve. And, and obviously there was a colossal failure uh, in, in Texas. And it, and it appears to me that in, in, in some way the chain of command obviously failed. You know, somebody made an egregiously bad call. And maybe maybe the police in a way is just too hierarchical. They're too obedient. Um, they don't have the mindset, as you were saying. You know, I remember when, when my brother was a firefighter. You see the building on fire, you rush in. Uh, you, you don't stand outside and watch it burn. So, so there was a very big mistake there, uh, and and hopefully we learn something from it because nothing like that should ever happen again. No, to me, if you want to be a law enforcement officer and go into a career where you are given a weapon, okay, then you have to be willing to put yourself out there on the line. That's your job. 
That's your job, period. Or don't do that job. And I'm so sick of it. It's not even in the top 20 most dangerous jobs in this country. Fishermen, commercial fishermen and loggers have much more danger and and wirers and and iron workers than police officers. And I'm so tired of that whole mentality of you don't know what that's like. You're right. I don't want to. That's why I don't have that job. It's just really annoying to me that somehow they have become priorities when their job is to serve at the will of the community. You noticed when Jen ran for Congress, particularly in in the working class areas, that the police cars that were parked in the driveways were for precincts that were, in some cases, an hour away from where they lived. And one thing about being a police officer, especially in small town America, as you guys know, uh, the community has to know who the police are. Like there is that connection that is immensely important. Um, I don't know what what the rules are, why that is. Again, we're in red Florida, so things are obviously different down here than blue New York and blue Massachusetts. But if you are being a a law enforcement officer that isn't necessarily representing um, the community and people don't know who you are and you're going from, let's say, Sunrise, Florida in central Broward down to Miami, which is an hour away, it's like that's a problem. And that community uh, uh, connection is a huge part, I think, of what the the issue with law enforcement is. And again, there is no silver bullet to solving the law enforcement issues that we have in the United States. But the one thing that I've been very adamant about and would love to hear your thoughts on is ending qualified immunity. I mean, to me, what happened in Uvalde is a great example of if qualified immunity does not exist, then the police department are the ones who are going to be financially responsible because Lord knows this is going to be the civil lawsuit to end all civil lawsuits that's going to come of, the, of what just happened. And the taxpayers will pick up the tab. Because we have qualified immunity, the taxpayers are the ones who have to pay for it. So to me, if there is going to be that cultural change within policing in the United States, because I've always maintained, if you want to change the culture of policing in the U.S., the, the police have to police the police. People from the outside can't do it. It is never going to happen. It always has to be. It is a fraternity, a very strong one. And that is the way it'll happen. And the way I see it is the overwhelming majority, once again, of good, honest police officers who know who the dirty cops are and the bad cops are will basically tell them, I'm not losing my pension for your bullshit. Like, that's not going to happen. So if the qualified immunity issue was there to me. That's what I think would really change uh, a lot of what goes on. So where the cops ultimately work and who is responsible if things go bad, I think, are ways that could really mitigate a lot of these problems. What do you guys think? Well, I think I think it starts with recruiting the police as well. And, And what I mean by that is, you know, asking the right questions. Why do you want to become a police officer? Because a lot of guys will say, you know, words to the effect that, well, I want to help people. Uh, And the next question is, well, when have you helped people? Show me some evidence that you've actually helped people before. And then you find out that they've never done anything to help anyone, that they really just want to be a cop because they like guns or they like the power of it or they have some military experience uh, and they just, you know, this is the next thing that they want to do. So, you know, just being up front at the beginning, recruiting the right people who are in it really to provide service rather than being on some kind of a power mission. I think that kind of 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 uh, of recruitment is is very 
uh, important. I think it's essential. Yeah. Sarah, so you serve on a commission, like, so you're saying you have a civilian commission. Is it, that's what it is that, that sort of oversees sort of the police, like not oversees, but we don't have that. We We don't have anything like that here at all. It's, uh, it's a small one. So we have a little bit of context because the geography helps to understand. Um, it's a suburb. It is the largest in the county police force outside of a city, the city of Syracuse. So it's about a 40 member um, police force. But then our board is about anywhere from 10 to 12 members. I serve currently at the town board level. So we have a few town elected officials. But prior to being elected, I served as a civilian capacity, just a, a genuinely interested um, community member. And that's... Um, those are those are the voices that are the most important, to be frank. Um, those are the discussions where we have a direct ear into the community. We know where the issues are. If um, there's a certain, I don't know, beat, if you will, that is being um, that may be a little more aggravated than others. We get the community members come in and tell us about it. I think um, to Bill's point, when he talks about recruiting and finding out the other side of that coin, though, is corporate culture. So uh, we found that not necessarily my policing agency, but if you were to remove all of the all of the officers, but you kept the same chief in and the chief was the one with the, um, you know, with the negative corporate culture, it wouldn't matter who you brought in and what their intentions are for being a police officer, because it comes from the top down. We really need to start eradicating folks that have older mentalities of the power abuse and, you know, the, the gun loving efforts and start looking for po- folks that are invested in a community policing effort, really getting in the community, living in the community that you're serving as, as you were saying earlier, is so key because then they, they, there's that trust building and then being there in nonviolent, non-responding capacities, just hanging out. We've started in a smaller village where um, one of the beats, literally, they just hang out at the park and at the basketball nets. They're shooting hoops. They're trying to understand who the kids are and really trying to just become a familiar face in the community so that we can get to issues prior to them becoming a response mechanism and um, really try to respond and give, again, it's going back to building that community trust yeah. because it's been broken both here and nationally. And I think that the aspect of recruiting is very important, but also that corporate corporate um, culture that we're supporting. Is it a good one? Is it a positive one? Or is it one that maybe it was from, you know, generations ago and we need to look to revamp that with some new leadership? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah makes a great point. You know, the saying the fish rots from the head is often so true. I mean, the other part of it, too, is the metrics that we use uh, to promote police officers. So, you know, how are police officers rewarded? Well, it tends to be things like how many arrests you've made, how many tickets you've written, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Why aren't you rewarding officers for diffusing tensions, for for building bridges within the community? The, the, The metrics are a little more subtle in that case. But we're often promoting the wrong kind of officer, the hyper aggressive one the one who makes a lot of arrests or, or uh, writes uh, tickets all the time uh, and actually is, is estranging He's, uh, the, the police from the community by hassling people so much. Yeah, I also think it goes hand in hand with the militarization because you get, you're recruiting a certain kind of person who wants to come and show up in riot gear and is interested in that. Like you're, you're getting almost a more commando mentality. It's like feeding itself because when all you have is a hammer, everything you see is a nail and they have all this fun stuff. So I, I just think you're getting a sort of mentality like a, you know, John I mean, Wayne mentality. Part of, yeah, part of it, part of it is that just the image of the police in our society, all the TV shows, you know, the shows that 
uh, SWAT teams, uh, all kinds of special weaponry. All of this is displayed as sexy. You know, violence is a positive thing. You know, I go back to the old dragnet shows, um, you know, with Joe Friday, uh, who only pulled his 38 snubby a couple of times. And when he did use his gun, it, 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 it provoked a great sense of unease uh, in him. You know, that's that's the old model of the cop, you know, a more more of an officer friendly, more of a beat cop, you know, not the kind of robo cops uh, that we see out there speaking of corporate influence, you know, uh, a great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what about the idea of rewarding cops? You were saying like, yeah, they get rewarded for basically over patrolling. Essentially, the more, you know, what if you actually rewarded officers for solving cases? Because there's a, so many unsolved cases. There are tons, especially rape cases that don't even get investigated. Kits don't get tested. Nobody follows through on them. Nobody cares. So I always thought like, what if you had officers actually solving crimes that existed instead of patrolling streets and looking for problems? Like that was just my crazy thought. Not too crazy, <laughs> but reasonable. Yeah. And I do think that that is uh, that gets back to, you know, usually the three things that we say in our society that can't have a profit motive, which is healthcare, education, which we've covered. And this, of course, is corrections. Uh, we have a for-profit uh, prison industrial complex in the United States. Uh, it is a very lucrative industry, uh, which translates into a lot of the judges that end up, uh, you know, running uh, certain areas. Uh, there's, it's, it's again. I think the reason why the average American has a hard time really wrapping their head around so much of these problems is because there's so many layers involved in yeah. terms of how you get to this conclusion of. We have, there are people, I kid you not, Sarah and Bill, there are people, I have spoken with plenty of them, they do not believe that we have a for-profit prison industrial complex, that mm. there's no for-profit corrections. They don't believe. They don't believe there's for-profit prisons. It's like, there's no such thing. But uh, there, but there oh, are. Oh, yes, there is. And all the mm -hmm. side industries. That's the thing also. It's all the side industries, the transportation, uniforms, all the side industries are extremely profitable. And so there is this huge financial incentive to incarcerate. We have a huge financial incentive to incarcerate. So it's like trickles down, you know, like we, the whole mentality is to go find people to arrest. And, 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 the, and the depressing, and I'm sorry, and the, and the depressing part is, uh, is that, is that we don't really focus in this country really on reform. Uh, yep. And so our recidivism rates are really high. It's yep. like, okay, you incarcerate people, then they finally get back on the street and then a few months or a few years later, they're back in prison. Uh, there, there has to be, you know, much more effort put on, you know, helping prisoners while they're in prison, making sure that they have options when they come out so they're not instantly back in prison. Yeah, yep. that social, that pesky social safety net that would just be so helpful for so many reasons. And there's a huge difference between a social safety net and welfare. Yeah. I try explaining this to people all the time. Uh, think of it this way. A social safety net is like a trampoline. A welfare is like quicksand. The more you step in it, the further down you're going to sink. With a social safety net, the idea is that you have a spring that can lift you up so you can, you know, you fall. Okay, great. Well, here's your helping hand. You're going to get back up again. It's the whole idea behind a living wage. I would rather pay somebody more than they're worth than to pay them less so they get on welfare and are on the government dole. 
So it's not rocket science. So many of these problems are easily correctable. And I think one of the best places to wind down the conversation, especially because the overwhelming majority of people who serve in the military are on the conservative side of politics. What I've learned is that progressives and libertarians have a lot in common on a number of issues, specifically when it comes to corrections. They do not believe in a for-profit prison industrial complex. They think that that is absolutely insane. They agree on civil liberties. They agree on war. So I'm curious as to what your experience has been like and what it's like being around, because you're definitely both on the progressive side of politics, but you've been around a lot of conservative-minded people. Is anything that I just said regarding some of those areas where we do agree you you have found is somewhat comparable to your personal experiences, especially in the military? So I'll go ahead because you you nailed it. Um, I think over the last, gosh, since 2016, we've gotten very good at um, stigmatizing words and attaching an emotional response to them, regardless of what the intention of the word is or the definition of the word. Somebody here is progressive and they are conservative. They're just going to get fired up and you're not going to have a conversation with them. So since the very beginning, I've been very obvious to not say those buzzwords because I want to have a true conversation. And I completely agree with you. We There are areas that we can agree. And if you use the word fiscal conservatism and you tell them, let's give a little bit of investment up front so that we're not always playing catch up in a welfare styled system. It's amazing. You can you can break through because now you're speaking their language and you're using it the way that they know how to use it. But you're applying it to you're applying it to social reform efforts that don't necessarily align to their, you know, to their traditional belief network. So I think that there is um, I, I, I think that there is common ground if we're able to not use the words that just, you know, attach and elicit an emotional response from folks. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm very excited about um when we talk about for healthcare, if you, you're able to tell folks how much they will spend out of pocket now versus if we are able to get universal health care. The problem is folks don't realize it because they don't look at their paycheck stub and see how much their employer is taking out. Um, our latest round of health care has us at 15 percent from the employer. That's a far cry from 4 percent that you could get. But you're going to see that 4 percent every paycheck because it's not taken out before the money hits your bank. So there's. Um, there's for, a, there's, the for-profit healthcare system is the biggest racket in the entire country. It's not even close. It's and it's so bad at this point that it's just it's just going to break. It's just a question of when it happens. I mean, more and more people are starting to get it, which is good. Um, like to get there sooner. But Bill, your thoughts? Well, dare I say we need to get back to the idea of class solidarity? Um, not that I'm a Marxist or anything. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, in all seriousness, I, I mean, uh, Sarah's right. I mean. What what brings us together, what unifies us, uh, is is a lot more important than than what divides us. Uh, and and I found you know in in the military, you know a lot of my friends were Southerners. I had evangelical friends in the military. I went to the you know national prayer breakfast. Uh, we, we all we all got along. Uh, maybe it was because we all wore the same uniform uh, that we had a common sense of mission. Uh, but we also had learned uh, to listen to each other. Uh, and, and I think we as Americans uh, can come together. Uh, and, and in fact, we have to. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we talk a lot Remember. about the same, 
capacity with labor. You know, when when we look at all the, the labor uprisings and you go to any of these places, some of these people are your MAGA people and some of these people were Bernie people. And they're all yet in this for the same reason. We, I mean, to us, labor is a huge common denominator of what we're trying to accomplish because it really bridges it. And what you were saying, Sarah, about how you talk to people, once you explain to people, and truthfully, even the most conservative study that was done by that Koch brothers, whatever that thing was, the something institute, said that um, we saved $2 trillion over 10 years. The Cato, Institute, the Cato institute right. And yeah. so it's just when you really tell people that this is the most financially efficient thing to do, like if we can't appeal to you morally, let me offer you a financial incentive, like whatever it takes. But there are a lot of common things, but they keep us so focused, especially when you watch things like CNN or MSNBC or Fox, whatever angle you're looking at. It just keeps all these ridiculous labels and talking points that keeps everybody fighting when it's really if you're not one of the people in charge, you're with us. <laughs> like you're one of us. And that's just the way it is. If you're not one of them, you're one of us. And yet they keep us kicking down or punching sideways or whatever. And it's so frustrating. I just want to direct people, at least punch up. Like if you want to be, and I'm not, again, I'm not a proponent of violence. I'm not a proponent of violence. I'm not a violent person. Like it's not my thing. But if you just feel rage, punch up. You know what I'm saying? Let's at least direct our anger in the correct direction. Oh, no, I'm a proponent of violence. Sometimes people <laughs> just need to get hit. <laughs> okay. I do is. think that there are, I, I look at people like Lauren Boeber, and she just has never well, had a sufficient ass kicking. At, at the very least, definitely, you definitely want to question authority. And you have to realize that oftentimes your government is lying to you. Again, you know, I was in the military for 20 years. You look back on the Pentagon Papers that Daniel Ellsberg came up with, the more recent Afghan war papers, and you realize the government was feeding us a whole bunch of BS about progress that wasn't being made. So you need to be willing to question authority. You need to be willing to think for yourself, uh, leaving all punching out of it. Uh, you definitely have to use your head. Yeah. Fair enough, Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankee fan, so of course. We'll it's have a all about sports for you. How do you even know he watches sports? He might not. You already mentioned the Celtics. Like, he might not even like sports. Maybe Bill, he you does. A, hey, Bill, are you a Red Sox fan? Just but uh, I am indeed a Red Sox fan. Yeah. Uh, he might have been curling for all you know. My life, my life was made in 2004. Well, my life was made in 2008 in Super Bowl 42. So you had us in 03. And we had you in your perfect Wait, wait, season. wait. Okay, here's where we get things are personal. Bill, are you a Patriots fan? Of course he is. Well, uh, yes, I am a Patriots fan. I, uh, and I, I liked you right. so much up until that point. I really did. <laughs> Jen's a, Jen's I am a, a very fan. disgruntled Dolphins fan. And need I remind you of the snowplow incident, amongst other things. But I'm a, just going to say, that's like fighting words. I, I, I have oh. – I have a quiet confidence. Patriots. I have a quiet confidence that Sarah might be on my uh, rooting side of sports. I but don't know. You could also be a Bills fan, and that wouldn't be bad either. That would actually be pretty cool. So where do you, where do you fall? Because that's the central part of the state. Because you've got Albany, which is very like Giants Yankees territory. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the more west you go, the more it creeps into that whole like Bills culture, which is obviously getting bigger by the day. Sure. So I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball here. Um, it's Syracuse University oh. <laughs> football and basketball, uh, but football, we go West to the bills and for um, basketball shucks, 
Now I can't remember. You can see how, how, how ingrained it is. I think we do the Brooklyn Nets. I'm going to have to follow up with my husband. That's my people. Yeah. But the good news <laughs> is uh, Larry Bird was one of my two favorite players growing up. I am certainly pulling for the Celtics in the finals. That home crowd is just such. There's one thing you can't take away from Boston. You guys have phenomenal, phenomenal fans. You really do. I that was thinking you. seafood, but that's good. Well, that's well, a lobster roll is definitely my favorite thing to have whenever I go to Boston. So that's that's my top thing. Guys, uh, needless to say, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for um, chatting. You know, we really this is it's conversations like this that reminds us of why, you know, we enjoy doing this podcast and why it's of, of great value. With that said, Sarah, what is your website? So people can check out your campaign if they want to get involved. So it's my name, one word, sarahcleehoodny.com. Or you can really, we've really simplified it. You can just search Sarah NY 22 and I, I better be (laughs) the first. What does your race look like? Are you running again? Is it an open seat or do you, what do you, you said you got redistricted. So is this open? So I joined into, oh, Jen's team. Can you put an NY at the end? Oh, it'll still, I still own that one too. Um, So it it should redirect you. But uh, the race originally was held by John Catco. He was a Republican. Uh, Well, we knew that New York would be redistricted. He announced his retirement, so it became an open seat. Map version number two saw us with a seven-way Democratic primary. And now that the map version three, it's a four-way Democratic primary. I'm the only female challenger, and I'm the far... I'm the left. <laughs> so I'm owning, I'm owning the lane there. Um, and it's very easy. We have a Rome Air Force Base used to be there. And so we have a, a strong retirement uh, population of veterans. And my platform, um, it's, it's single-payer universal health care. It's paid family medical leave, free college universe, uh, trades, and um, wage-driven child care, all of which are provided by the Department of Defense to troops, regardless of age, rate, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it lifts the bottom, it spreads the middle, and it, it takes care of your home life. So when we talk about all of these things, there's already a system that's figured it out. So when I think that's your primary. <laughs> it's a special election now, August 23rd, which is oh. the first day of the great New York State Fair, which happens to be housed in Syracuse. So, you know, we're really not sure what to do. We have 10 different, um, what would we call them, um, win numbers for every scenario that we could think of under the sun because we have no idea what's going on right now. There's still the primary in June for the state level folks in New York. So now we're throwing one in August, which is also uh, for parents of children. You know, if they have a couple extra days at the end of summer and they're like, we're going to go on a mini vacation. That's yeah. when they go. Well, that's why <laughs> they're doing it then. That's why our primary is always August. We have an August primary. It's probably the same day as when our primary is regular okay. your Tuesday. And it is done to have lower voter turnout. That is absolutely mm-hmm. one of the things that they do. Um, and it isn't uh, a Democrat or Republican thing. It's just uh, we like to sit in power and we don't want to share that with new people thing. And so they don't want they don't want to change anything. And that's both parties because you're in New York and you're seeing it. Florida's red. We have it. And basically power doesn't want to concede their power. And they certainly don't want people from the left coming up there and getting all in their business and telling um, telling them what we're entitled to. I do think in the field that you're running in, the fact that there are several candidates and you basically have the non-corporate. You see, that's like you say, buzzwords. You see, the word progressive is has been so easily co-opted that our 
own representative, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, oh, again, ran she, against. She calls, she herself, calls herself, herself a progressive. But what you can't <laughs> call your, but what you can't call yourself is non-corporate if you're not non-corporate, because then people can call you out for being a liar. And that's always wonderful in politics, even though mostly they all lie. No, the difference so, is we say populist now. Yeah, I tend to say okay. populist. Yeah, non, non-corporate populism populist. is really the ticket. In, and of course, the fact that you are uh, somebody who served the country, you know, especially in upstate. That's New a York. good lane. That is a very, it's a good, very good niche to be like left and a veteran. And if you've got that sort of libertarian left, you know, streak, if you will, like that is, uh, yeah. I mean, look, honestly, it's, it's fundraising, it's phone banking, it's text banking, it's canvassing. It's the real grassroots traditional stuff that really does work. But the military card's a good one. It's one that I actually support using, not like the breast cancer card and not the race card, but the military service card we have said, is legit. We have said multiple times that one of the reasons why right now, as it currently stands, as it stands today, things can change over time. But as it stands right now, the most likely president in 2024 is Ron DeSantis. And the reason that is, I believe, is because of the fact that he did serve our country in combat, was JAG. He has um, a lot of support already. Um, We haven't had a president who served in, and I am not counting George W. Bush. Sorry, he doesn't count. No, well, he didn't Uh, serve. The last person who truly served our country was George H.W. Bush. So it has been a while since that's happened, and I have no doubt that from your voting block's perspective, having served, it matters. It does matter, and and I'm sure you're seeing that. So if there's anything we could do to help, and guys, anybody who's seeing the podcast, you know, please go to SarahCleeHoodNY.com, <laughs> lend the hand, and Bill, the floor is yours. Anything you're working on, anything you want to share with the audience? Right. Well, well, first of all, I just want to salute Sarah because you know I, I think. I think more, uh, you know, military veterans need to run, and particularly from the uh, progressive side. Uh, this is this is critical that 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 more of us get involved. Uh, I, I I I run a blog called Bracing Views. It's just bracingviews.com, and I write a lot for a site called Tom Dispatch, run by Tom Englehart. Um, I have an article coming out uh, this Thursday at Tom Dispatch, where I imagine giving my own graduation speech to cadets uh, as they cross the stage at the Air Force Academy. Uh, General, uh, uh, I say General Lloyd Austin, actually he's the Secretary of Defense. He's supposed to be a civilian, but as we know, he's a general and that's, uh, and also worked for Raytheon, which is the military industrial complex. That <laughs> but uh, I urge I urge anyone listening, uh, check out my article on Thursday where I, I imagine how I would give a speech to cadets as they graduated uh, from the Air Force Academy where I taught uh, for six years. Where is that again? That one's at, at you had an, it was another site. Where was that one? Oh, that's uh, tomdispatch.com. T-O-M. Tomdispatch.com. Tomdispatch.com. Yeah. And then do you have social media or anything that, that people follow? Does anybody care about that? No, no, I, I don't care about it either. Good. I, you know what? Considering that wonderful bookcase that you have behind you, I can certainly understand why. It's certainly, you know, we we have lost that tradition, which I really wish we would bring back. That's one of the things we love about our doing the podcast is when we can bring on authors. We bring that, on authors. You know, they send us their book. We read the book. We talk about. I just it. got something yesterday. It's very cool. I just the only the only complaint is I'm I've gotten where I like Audible, 
And <laughs> and when they send you a preview of the book, it's still not available on Audible until it's out regular. So so right. So if you want to do it early, you have to read it. So it's it's probably good for me. Yeah, we, hope I, you guys, we hope you guys have enjoyed the conversation as much as we have. And of course, being that you have served our country um, every other month, pretty much, you know, we do have a veterans panel that we bring on would obviously like to engage. We regularly do that in the future. So uh, we really appreciate it. Sarah Cleehood, Bill Story, we really uh, appreciate you coming on. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you guys. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Happy Memorial. Same to you. Bye-bye guys. Bye. They're lovely. Very nice people. And um, Sarah's, She's got a lot going for her. She's a great candidate. candidate. Yeah. I don't know enough about that district. Is it like, it's probably a red district though. Not necessarily a big red. I don't think no. so. Actually, from what I'm trying recall, to picture that area outside of Syracuse, it's, it's, there's a lot of rural. Yeah, no, there is. But again, she's got a lot going for her. She's, you know, she's attractive. She's intelligent. She's got the nuclear family. Uh, her, I think she's got. She's adorable. You see the two kids or three kids. Two. I mean, two, she's got two kids. Uh, served in the military, um, really knows her stuff, obviously is non-corporate. We, we have someone else coming on, right? Uh, we do not. Oh, okay. We were supposed to have Brett Welder. He could not make it. Soon. Okay. It says that this is a plus nine R, but I can't that might tell not be if this one. is the old map or the new See, map. That's the thing. I, don't, I, don't it's not, so. I bet you it's old. You don't, that's what she, it's a brand new district. Uh, well, the good news is, is that if you are. It's a new line. If and when you're able to if and when you do go up there to see Reese, might have an opportunity to pass through that area. We have to also talk about the going to Orlando thing because I want to go to Orlando next right. week. We are supposed to go. To I want to go. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah. Our friend Tank Shottle is playing soccer at the Special Olympics and it's in Orlando. He's with the Austin team. But, um, and I want to go watch. Here's the thing. And I didn't tell you this. So soccer is from 8 to 1230 every day like for four days, for like the Monday through Thursday. 8 a.m.? Correct. Wow. To 1230 every day. So here's the, here's the thing. <laughs> we, we have to either, one, commit to getting up really early in the morning, which is fine. I, I can do it. I'll do it because that's worthwhile to do it. Um, I'm also going to go to the cookie place when we're up there. Well, I had a feeling we would do that. <laughs> we're definitely going to the cookie place. Yeah. So there's that. Or unless there's a reason to go up and spend a night, like if there was some sort of good event or some sort of networking thing or something that might be worthwhile doing. Well, I already put a message out to Austin Valley to see what he and maybe Anna, see what Anna Escamani is up to. I know she's campaigning. Um, Maybe uh, Max. I I want to bring, I was thinking I would bring her office some of those, some of the cookies. Yeah, that would be cool. Because they're really good. And her office actually is, and I looked it up on the map. It's not far from the cookies. All right. So perfect. Everything revolves around cookies. But the if point Maxwell is. Maxwell Frost has an event going on, which usually he does. You know, maybe we could check that out. I'm thinking we go on like. Um, we'll pick a night. That's the thing. Because otherwise well, we're getting on, up at the crack of dawn Well, he says that it starts on. Well, we're not going to. We'll go there and then, you know. We'll, we'll stay the night and then in the That's morning. What I'm saying. Yeah. We're going to have to make it an overnight. I, I, yeah, it it could easily be a day trip. It could. It's really not that big of a deal, except for 8 to 1230. We'd have to get up so early. Yeah, that would be. I'm not getting up at four in the morning. <laughs> That's not the morning. That's the middle of the night. To me, six yeah. o'clock officially starts the morning. And for anybody who gets up before that, I'm sorry if you have to, but that's the middle of the night. A lot of people said they really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Tonight. I really thought we had a very good rapport. I can tell that. Let, let's put it this way. Bill, he's the kind of guy I would hang out with. Like I could tell. Well, I he's just cool. But he had me at his family was firefighters. I have a 
I have like serious firefighter fetish. All right, so I'm going to share this with you. Love just because I know that this is going to happen. And I mean, real firefighters. I mean, yeah, calendar firefighters are cool. That's nice and all, but I hate when they have them holding little puppies. Like that's all stupid. But all right, well, I'm not going to tell you. When this, I'm not going to tell you when this is going to happen, but I'm going to tell you one of the guests we're going to be getting on the podcast very soon is Robert John Burke. I don't know who that is. You do know him if you saw him. Okay. He's. Uh, is he he's, a firefighter? He actually is a volunteer firefighter. See, I, I like and that. And he's an actor. I, I do. He's, I, from, I, he's, he's on SVU. Oh, okay. Yeah. I really do love me firefighters. Like seriously, I drive by the fire station almost every day because it's on sunrise. And I always like, I'm craning my neck to see if they're out there. Sometimes they're working on the truck or whatever they're doing, but serious firefighter fetish. Yeah. <clears throat> Keith, obviously, um, you know, we haven't connected with Danny Scherzen in a while. Not, you know, again, he, uh, he goes dark. It's oh, not uncommon. He's him. done it before. My love goes unrequited with that one. But yes, I do. I do wish he would come back. Another one, John V with the very enjoyable talk. Yeah, no, listen, I thought it flowed Infinity. very well. John V. Infinity. John V. Infinity. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, is there anything you <clears throat> wanted to talk about, like the nonsense with Ted Cruz? We do have a bootlicker if you want to do that. I mean, I, you're the one who knows this whole story, but basically I, my- We have been dealing left and right with a lot of stupid people in politics for far too long. I am not going to be nice about this anymore. I just don't have patience and neither should anybody else. When you're stuck, we're calling you out. It's sorry, but it's happening. So I'm going to address a few different people in this segment, which I think is a great way because I've been making good timestamps tonight. So okay, so this is going to be our, we have a bootlicker alert, guys. We have ourselves a bootlicker. Well, look, there's no shortage of them, really. But every once in a while, somebody stands out. I mean, like, honestly, it could be Ted Cruz Weekly. You know, like, so sometimes you just got to pass it on to other people just for shits and giggles. He but was President ahead. Obama's right-hand man. David Axelrod is our bootlicker of the week. And the reason that he is bootlicker <laughs> of the week, and this is, you know, sometimes you put a tweet out there and it's a mistake. You write something that is nonsensical. And you think, all right, well, I made a mistake. All right, I'll take it down. And this tweet's still up. What was the tweet? If what happened in Uvalde tells us anything, it's how immensely important our law enforcement is. And I'm thinking... That goes somewhere between bootlicker and kente cloth tales of anthology of tone deafness. Like, I mean, that's really bad. But so my thought is this is somebody. So whose boots does he does he lick? That's it's well, that's Fraternal Order of Police. So it's police union. And that's just some other police union. They're they're pick your union. I just random. Now, why would somebody like David Axelrod get on his knees literally for the police? Well, it's very simple. David Axelrod is a very powerful and wealthy individual. And he loves the police because the police protect him and his property. That's why. That's why he licks their boots and their ass. And again. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's the, to me, that is the equivalent of saying that that's up there with that. We should just arm teachers or the solution to guns is more guns. Like that's as ridiculous as that to me. Like to say you just saw something like what happened in Uvalde and you think that that's a demonstration of why we need law enforcement. I don't know what you're taking, but I kind of want to try some. Like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't know what show you're watching. <gasps> this man has constantly berated the non-corporate left. He particularly was completely disparaging of Bernie uh, against Hillary in 2016. No surprises there. 
This is a man who really believes, as did a lot of people who were successful as part of Obama's two presidential wins, especially 2008, they have been able to monopolize the whole swamp, if you will, as a means to just making endless amounts of money and having the worst possible takes known to man. This take was so bad. When I say that he got ratioed, he got ratioed off the planet and he still won't take it down. This Well, there's the this, this level of hubris that just knows no bounds with some of I am people. never wrong and you commenters don't know anything. But, but like this whole group, I mean, he's in there with like the Clintons and all that. But what makes these types of people particularly disgusting to me is they suckle at the teat of other people's power. It's like, these are the people that come, they're like the consultant class of people that come out of the woodwork, right, to feed off of other people's fat. Like, these are the biggest parasites ever. It's even more, like, I mean, you've got people like the Clintons, which to me, it's like evil. Like, she's just evil. And then you've got people that suckle at the teat of evil. And that's this guy. It's like, I can't even, it's so slimy. The whole concept of a bootlicker could be embodied specifically as a result of what he did. And what he did was what I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that two things have happened. So one thing that was pointed out today is... Biden and his administration are not meeting with anybody related to gun reform. That's not happening. So when Jen is very nihilistic, and that's appropriate in the sense, when we talk about getting anything done related to gun reform, there's a reason why nothing gets done. Because as we've said, the weapons manufacturing industry is one of the biggest commodities we have in the United States. And that is why nothing changes. When you earmark $40 billion for Ukraine in the latest bill, how much of that you think is going to weapons manufacturing? Just take a guess. I'll tell you what, it's probably a lot more than you think. Because as much as you think this is going to humanitarian aid, it isn't. (laughs) No. They'll get some humanitarian aid. Oh, don't worry. But much like the Clinton Foundation, when it came to Haiti, this is a similar situation. $40 $40 billion for humanitarian aid. No, probably about 5% of that. Will actually like go to help Foundation. anybody. We'll go to help anybody. These are money laundering schemes That's all this by is. government people to their rich friends and the consultant class. 1,000%. It's like you're watching them just fleece the money to the top, like I'm watching it in real time. And I often wonder, because I do think that there's a lot of, you know, and again, this is Memorial Day, and a lot of people <clears throat> who we know who have served have lost family and friends or have lost comrades that have served. And you wonder how they look at it and think, did we really die for nothing? Well, that's that's what actually bothers me the most about it. Because when people have said to me things about, um, because I'm, I'm just, I'm really anti-war, man. I'm just like, I'm a really live and let live person. And the fact is, is that I think it's important to defend yourself, but we're, let's be real, we're at war for resources and profit and, and just to keep the military industrial complex churning. We're not there out of any principle. We're not doing anything to defend ourselves. We haven't been threatened in some way. And so, so when I say that I'm anti-war, it's because these are not. And what's even more amazing is when you think about Ted Cruz and you think about like how how what did he do? Bad of a spot. Well, he gets on TV and he starts talking about how 
we need only one door in and out of schools. Like, that's the problem. That's what's going to yes. solve this crisis. Let's completely shut down our children and take away whatever remains of their outdoor childhood has left. It, it <clears> almost, <throat> and I'm thinking, how does Ted Cruz become the spokesman? <clears throat> Why would anyone on the political right want Ted Cruz as a spokesperson? Well, I don't know what, okay, first of all, nobody likes Ted Cruz. I don't even think he, Ted Cruz likes Ted Cruz. He, and he like actively seeks the spotlight. Like he is a, he is a, such an Uber dude. He is such a camera whore in the worst kind of way. It's horrible. He, I know when his, his pitch has got to go a certain way and he's got, this is why I can't watch that stuff. I cannot watch this stuff. There's not, you know what? There's just not enough weed in the world that would make me sit around and be able to watch that nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I just, God, these people are just so pathetic. They just sit there and like, it's like their entitled gift to just sit there and spew like their opinions. Like, like we care, like who the hell is that? Like, why do we Matt, care? Here's what I'm going to say. If you really want to see what it's like to get change in the United States, one of these people at the top are going to get killed because that's what's going to, that's well, gonna that's happen. look, you know, when you look at the, I, I love the idea of a peaceful revolution. We tried that. We offered them Bernie. They said, no, thank you. 15 and 16. And so right. you're getting so a revolution should, whether you want it or not. Right. And so uh, in history, as a person who looks at history and reason, it's generally violent when it happens. There hasn't been a whole lot of peaceful revolutions in history. So uh, it's inevitable to me. Like the oligarchy can, the plutocrats can only get so fat. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And it's like, they're, it's only going to get so far. And eventually it'll happen to the wrong person. Then they'll care. And I will leave, and we'll, and we'll leave with this. And I have been holding this in because we put a, a tweet out earlier today in response to Dr. Allison Gill, better known as the lady who ran the podcast Mueller, she wrote. Yeah, not kidding. Uh, I don't even know what that is. Never heard of this. So this is the ultimate grift. And I'm going to explain to you all why that is the case. This without, this without question, because again, neoliberals have nothing to offer other than vote shaming. So when the word came out that Biden is only going to cancel 10K in student debt, means tested, not even across the board, he's going to means test this against, against, against income, against income. That's how he's testing it. So when people are out saying, I'm not voting for this anymore, you've got Everyone and their mother in that neoliberal bubble in the uber liberal bougie cities on the coastlines predominantly that are trying to tell people that they are terrible because they're not doing as they're told. They're not listening as they are told. And in this case, you've got Dr. Allison Gill, why she calls herself a doctor. I have no idea because she isn't one. A lot of people pretend to be qualified to do things that they're not qualified to do. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And then there's people that have the degree and they're just so into it that they need everybody to know that, Dr. Jill Biden. So what do you think this lady did, Dr. Allison Gill, <laughs> to try to shame people into <laughs> voting for Joe Biden, even though her argument is, well, I know Biden said he would cancel 50000 in student loan debt, but you're only going to get ten. And if you don't vote for him, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go talk to the families of the people who just got massacred in Buffalo. I'd like you to go talk to the parents of the kids who just got massacred in Uvalde. And then I want you to go and talk 
to victims of rape. Yeah, she actually said that. Go talk to rape victims. And Jen worked on Jane Doe cases. So Jane Roe. Roe, Jane Roe. Is it Roe? Yeah, Jane Doe is when dead bodies show up. Jane Roe. Sorry. Jeez, man. The level of disconnect and the level of sanctimony on this piece of garbage to say this is unreal. But that's not where it ends. It gets better. I don't even know who this person is. You don't need to know. I, I don't want to know now. She's what we call in, in, in what, what Vosh and Shoe on Head and all of them in gaming would say is an NPC, non-playable character. She is no different than any other sycophantic, get-rich-quick swamp dweller. So that's oh, she's she a is. consultant class person. Oh, not only that. This is a person who had a podcast, I shit you not, <laughs> managed to convince, I'm not kidding, 7,000 people in this country to be patrons to her podcast. This person was raking in thirty to fifty thousand dollars a month. <laughs> we can't even break hundred and fifty. But but here's where it gets even more interesting. Her podcast went to hell right after the Mueller report was released, and Bob Mueller said, "Yes, there's crimes, but there is no collusion. It's over." So of course her podcast fell apart. But that is not where it ends. <laughs> it gets even better than that. She took out a PPP loan for her podcast. Oh my God. Over $50,000 <laughs> for a podcast. And she's telling people what they need to be doing in terms of voting. Oh, baby. Let me tell you the grift is getting caught. It's getting caught. And the jig is up, people. We so, we see it. It's so clear now. This is so beyond the pale at this point <sighs> in terms of how nefarious and what's a good word, Jen? Uh, think about it. What's a good uh, – no. It, it's craven. They're so craven in their activity. I just think they're, it's, they're just so – they're shameless. Yeah, they're shameless. They don't don't care. care. They don't care. And what's even more interesting is if you go and look at the thread, she tries to defend her actions, saying that the money that she was taking from the PPP loans, you know, the things that people couldn't get, the people who really needed it couldn't get. And yet we know somebody who got found guilty or pled guilty on fraud charges and is serving time in federal prison right now for scamming that. Why isn't Dr. Gill suffering the same fate? Oh, that's right, because she's a wealthy white woman who lives in San Diego and has been scamming the hell out of a lot of people who really just don't get it. They're all out there. There's tons of scammers. Every single, I mean, again, I'm not going to continue to name names because there's no point, but this one I could not hold back on. This was so disgusting, so craven, so out of line. Hey, anybody out there besides me who has no idea who he's even talking about? And he's so angry about it. You know what we're going to do? So I think that every live stream should end. You could end with a pontificating with Peter because we could put it up. And we, you could go off on whatever crazy thing that you're just – because it's like and, – and these types of things eat him up. Like they eat him up. I hate people that take advantage. <laughs> the first three words were perfect. I hate people. I hate people who shamelessly take advantage of working people. 
And for me, it's always a degree worse when it's somebody who is sort of a representative of a vulnerable class and they basically step on their own. And they know what, and she knows what she's doing. She's a hundred percent aware of her, of her grift. You're not, she's not that stupid. And what was pointed out, like I said, what was so great about this was the fact that this is, this is one of the good things about the internet is that there are people who have the receipts and the receipt came out where they showed where her podcast completely took a nosedive right after Bob Mueller's report. And she still went out and put tens, got at a minimum, she got 50,000 in PPP loan money. Can you believe, can you, how freaking craven do you have I to be? I partially don't completely understand what you're saying just because the tone and all of it is just, there's so much rage and anger about someone who I don't even know who that is, that it's just hard for me to, to get behind that. But um, the person's hypocrisy about the fact uh, that you better vote for the Democrats because they're doing nothing for you, but the Republicans will make it worse. Yeah, that's what that's all they've do. got. That's all they have. Not offering you anything better. Let me ask you this. When is it going to take somebody like that, somebody with that big a platform to say, President Biden, you're not going to save the Democrats in the midterms. And please stop kicking I'm me. Sorry. If you're not going to cancel student loan debt cancel it. We should have tuition-free public college and trade schools in the United States. Well, see, that's the, that's sort of how pathetic we are and how far the Overton window has shifted that we're arguing about. We're sort of debating how much relief people should get from something that shouldn't exist. Think about it. There shouldn't be such a thing as student loan debt. Like that shouldn't be the thing that it is any more than having like de- declaring bankruptcy for healthcare debt. Like it, this is a ridiculous, re- ridiculous level at which we're starting the conversation to begin with that it's so absurd that they're nickel and diving how much relief and want to means test it as if look if a handful of upper middle class and wealthy kids who maybe their parents are cheap and just didn't feel like paying if a handful of them get relief Okay, so what? You know what? There's always a freeloader somewhere, but that's just the, that's just how it goes. So you, most people are not those people. Correct. They're most not. people are not those people. So the fact that there's such a thing as student loan debt is ludicrous. Just like they want to do the outliers on libs of TikTok, basically saying that every teacher is a blue-haired trans person who's going to indoctrinate your kids into this wonderful world of LGBTQA. Uh, just like not every conservative is a psychopath that goes around coughing on people trying to give them COVID because they think it's a hoax. Every time there is an outlier to the circumstance, that is what media hones in on because that's what gets clicks, that's what sells, and that's what divides people. When people like Dr. Gill, and I use that term very loosely, her intention is not to get you to do something. Sounds like a fish. That is actually going to benefit you. The reason she says what she says is because her career depends on it. You can't grift your way out of this. If you can't see the scam that's getting run on you at this point, that the only reason they say these things is because it pays to be a shill like they are. A shill like Gil. That's and when one. I hear when I hear Dr. Gill, I swear to you in my head, I'm thinking of like one of the doctors in like the Finding Nemo universe would be named Dr. Gill. And it would be like a fish character. If they really cared, maybe an octopus, if they really cared, they would be saying President Biden cancel the damn student loan debt. But they're not saying that they're telling you don't sit down, shut up and do what we say. That's what they do. And all of the underlings, all of the liberals 
who hate working class people. And let me be very clear about this. One thing I could tell you on my experience being in politics for the past several years, suburbanite liberals hate working people. They may not say it outright, but they do not care for them. They just don't. And there's many reasons why, not the least of which is the fact that they're not as educated as they are. And they base a lot in life on how much of an education you have. Remember that you said that because it comes back to something you and I have had a discussion about that I think is sort of exactly what I'm saying to you. Think it through. They do care about that. About the education? Yeah. Yeah, they do. I know. Yeah. Right. Which is why it would matter for a candidate. So having that education is significant. And there's also something to be said in society for people that like to be able to look down on other people because they do. They like to be able to see that they are doing better in life than other people are. That's envy. It's what, it's the most common sin. Envy works in multiple ways. It can be because you're envious of what somebody else has, or you're envious of the fact that somebody else sees the world clearly and you can't. Or the people that feel like I had to pay for college to let everybody else suck it up. But, or people like Joe that think that, you know, I was able to work a, you know, a regular job. Yeah. Minimum wage could be lived on at that time, Joe. It was also around the turn of the century. Can you believe that Joe had the balls to say the other day that his tuition for college was hard to pay and it was $300 a semester? I just don't. I, I just like can't. If they, again. If, you know what? And if, if the minimum wage had gone up with the same level that it should be, then yeah, then maybe somebody could, if somebody could work a minimum wage job, work 40 hours a week and be able to live. And, and live decently, then fine. Yeah. Then, okay, then that's good. But you know what? I just, they're so, um, they, they don't give a shit. They, they don't. They just really don't care. You it's gotta stop party. listening to them. It's a big party. You gotta that stop having. listening to them. This is one of the reasons why they are so hell bent on stopping the labor movement because when Bernie supporters and Trump supporters get together and find common ground, it's all over. They have nowhere to go. That's why they are so determined to keep us to, apart. To keep us apart. <laughs> You're so determined. Not because you apart. agree with them socially. No, no. But when you can find common ground economically, that's what most we really people, need. Most people don't care about the social aspects. That stuff goes out the window. That's when they aren't fighting to try to prevent people from getting the the to living the life that they want to live. They're if, distracting if, you. If people who are conservative had the opportunity to, to get to be more successful economically, they won't have the time to worry about whether or not LGBTQA people are able to live a regular, well-balanced life like the rest of us should be able to, no questions asked. Well, that's one of those things that when people are miserable and desperate, they're going to punch down. And Always. Gonna be, and that's the goal is to get everybody to punch down. So it's the, it's the people coming across the border. It's the LGBTQ people are getting special treatment. And if everybody wasn't so fucking miserable they wouldn't be so annoyed with other people and what other people are doing. I, I just, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me, the whole concept of like, I mean, yeah, the LGBTQ, that's a very marginalized community. And most people are just very ignorant about what that is and what that looks like. And then when you see people that represent the community politically, it sometimes is a huge turnoff for people in that very overwoke kind of manner. And it bothers me because of the people that I know that are, that are LGBTQ people, but. Because those are the ones who get to the surface. This is no different than you. It's frustrating. It's no different than big city liberals who live in gated buildings and communities who say ban all guns. 
By the way, thanks a lot, Michael Moore. That was really smart oh, of you to say, good God. especially in Michigan, How in a, in a state that Michael read this year. Really smart, man. Really but smart. this is this is one of those things. OK, we come full circle back to the gun thing. I support things like lead, like background checks. And if you want to ban it, ban it. But my my thought is that we know that that won't solve the problem. And so for me, it's more just what kinds of things can we do that might solve the problem? And that's where I come from. I just come from being trying to be extremely practical based on what are the numbers? What's the best way to handle this situation? Because taking away the guns and banning the guns is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Even if we all agreed to it, there's too many guns out there already. It, it would take you, I think Bo did a thing. He's like, it would take you 600 years to collect all the guns. Like we need something that would work now. And so I think when we talk about things like bans and that, it keeps us focused on things that are not going to be reasonable short-term solutions. And it keeps us distracted from trying to figure out stuff we could do that would help, you know, the situation now. That's my thought. We hope you guys have enjoyed the show. Wednesday will be fun. We will have, um, I think it's Kate Tietano. She's running for Congress against Mr. Scott Peters in San Diego. Here goes, you're asking how our how our LGBTQ people marginalized? Let's not get into that now. I, let, let's just end the show. <laughs> it would be easier for me to tell you how they're not marginalized. Yeah. It's not easy being... Oh, my God. And it's not even LGBTQ. It's it's really, it's trans. Is that what you think it is? Well, that's the yeah. current, that's the soup du jour of that group. You know, right. I mean, you don't hear people like saying, oh, you know, fighting against people that say they're non-binary. They do seem to have a real hang up with genitalia. Which I still, for the life of me, don't understand why I still people think are concerned with people's genitalia. I, yeah, well, again, as I said, I still think the biggest reason why people don't people get obsessed over it is because secretly a lot of them are in the closet, and that's why they do. But so. I look, man, like I, my experience with trans people is the same as my experience with just people, and I know trans people, and they're just people that yeah. I like hanging out with because they're just cool. Hmm. Like, and, and it just, there's nothing like their existence. The fact that they're trans is one part of just who that person is. It's not like, I, I mean, yeah, like I don't get why people care what other people have in their pants. You don't have to agree with me. And I'm not saying everybody sees it the same way. What I am saying is that there are, there is something to be said. Listen, Again, this is why there's no point in having this conversation now because it's going to take way too long and I we, we got to go. He has to eat. He's getting hangry. Yeah, I am. I know. Um, people are going to be different. And one of the greatest reasons why racism and a lot of those things exist is because it's always fear of the unknown. I've never lived around people who are different, uh, different values, different traditions. And we are a divided country on purpose. We are a centralized designed economy, which is a huge mistake. And yes, it, you know, this goes against the, um, you know, a, a democratic uh, economic model. It's much more of a GOP model, decentralized planning. I think that that in itself uh, really lends a hand into why we have very rural, substantially rural part of the country. And we have a, you know, certain amount of 
you know, obviously ur- suburban sprawl, urban sprawl and city dwellers. And again, a lot of traditions come from that. And again, it's part of the reason why the military is a certain way. So there's, it's a very connect, interconnected thing. It is. It's very, it's very intersectional. I mean, I know it's a very kind of cheesy word, but it is, it's all of it is so like it is when we were talking before that was like this thought, you know, what if everybody had paid college or trade school, you required civil service after that. And at that point was when people went into the military and they were older and people didn't have access to weapons when they, when their brains aren't developed. Like I said, think like about it is connected. what it would be like if the military was an option, not a, not a necessity as it is for so many. That's why it's so hard to get people to join. Because again, if we had a military that actually was there to serve and protect, that would be one thing. We have a military that's designed to control the world. And it's that's the it. imperialist empire. That's it. So Wednesday will be a fun show. Wait, who are we having on Wednesday? We are having, I, I said, uh, Kate Tiatano, who's running against Scott Peters in San Diego uh, for the U.S. Congress. And we will be speaking with Rachel Beikoffer, who is a very knowledgeable uh, political pundit who is less uh, swampy. Uh, definitely knows a thing or two. <laughs> that's 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 why we're having her on because she's inside but less swampy yeah i think that's probably the best way (laughs) it'll be an insightful conversation we'll see where it goes uh we hope you guys enjoyed it uh i had to get that rant out i couldn't take it anymore oh my god we'll see you (laughs) thanks for watching if you want to support our mission to transform politics into service please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.